This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It was his last act. He was a showman to a very large degree. His words were performances, his acts were in some ways performative, and his execution was was performed. The trial was a big performance, and there was an egoism to it that Dostoevsky saw and that Dostoevsky was captivated by because he could see that egoism in Russian society. You can still see it today. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Kevin Birmingham is an author who specializes in penning books about difficult writers, but he's really good at making those writers feel accessible to the reader. And Birmingham's latest book is a great example. He unravels the story of a killer, a writer, and one of the most well-known books in literature. So let's start with how you want to be introduced to the spelling of your first and last name and what your official title would be here. Kevin Birmingham, spelled like the city, B-I-R-M-I-N-G-H-A-M. You can just call me the author of The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. So you have Dostoevsky and James Joyce, which just seems like two of the most complicated (laughs) novelists on the planet. You obviously like challenging subjects. Writers are supposed to do two things. They're supposed to make complicated things simple, and they're supposed to make simple things complicated. And from the literary side, my job is making complicated things simple. And the surprising little details of the story are about showing us how these things that we easily overlook end up becoming complicated. So I sort of take a delight in doing that. It's great to see how people might have read Dostoevsky or Joyce years or decades ago, and they forgot about him, and then they're rediscovering him, partly because of how I talk about their novels and recreate them and pull out a portion of their lives. And for me, it's storytelling, and it's literary history done through storytelling. And there is a way to look at history as told through a handful of great books. I think that was very eloquent. Your point is taking complicated things and distilling them down to something that the average reader is going to want to read. And this comes down to telling a compelling story. Where does it make sense for you to start with this story? I think chronologically, it begins with the crime since it happens in 1834 in Paris. Dostoevsky discovers 
the story in the 1860s because he reads about it, because the story was famous. It was all over the French press. And he was looking for material for a magazine that he was starting with his brother. And when he came across the story, he wanted to translate it for that magazine. The story kept bouncing around in Dostoevsky's head for a few years until he started to write Crime and Punishment. Dostoevsky's own interest in true crime, which came from the fact that he was imprisoned in Siberia hmm. for about a decade. And so he was arrested. He thought that he was going to be executed. So in a way, he was on one side of the murder equation. And when he went to Siberia, he was surrounded by murderers mm -hmm. and was captivated by their stories and kept trying to draw out their stories and was listening to them talk about their crimes, many of whom spoke to him quite candidly about what they did and why they did it. Tell me about the criminal in this famous case. Who was Pierre-Francois Lassenaer? So Lassenaer came from a bourgeois background. He was well-educated. He came from a wealthy family. But unfortunately, the family became bankrupt before he was able to inherit anything. So he immediately felt as if uh, the world was uh, an unjust world, that he was deserving of something, deserving of riches, but was never able to take control of those riches. He intended to go to law school, but didn't go to law school, partly because his father couldn't afford it. And this incredible resentment of someone who felt as if society owed him something but didn't give it to him, was festering in him for a long time. He was a, a petty criminal for years. What kind of crimes? We're talking about uh, small counterfeits, petty theft, things like that. But as time went on, his plans got more and more ambitious. And he ultimately devised a plan that involved robbing banks. But it was a roundabout way of robbing the banks. Instead of storming into a bank and trying to take money from the vault, the plan was to lure a collection clerk what did a collection clerk do in Paris? These were young men, usually, who just had satchels. And inside the satchels, they had banknotes and often francs, cash, and were usually collecting on banknotes that people owe. These are effectively private checks that were only cashable at specific banks. And if you had an important client, instead of the client going to the bank, the bank would effectively come to you. He wanted to lure a collecting clerk up to an apartment and then kill the collecting clerk and then take whatever was in his satchel. The challenge of this was that it required a certain amount of money in order to create a decoy apartment because he didn't really have one in Paris. And then you had to furnish it and it had to look like the furnishings of a somewhat wealthy individual, someone who had tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of francs in dealings with the bank. So the first step for this large scheme was for him to rob someone he knew, someone who was a former prison mate of his. Lassenaire was in prison a couple of times for petty crimes before 1834. And he'd heard a rumor that a former prison mate of his had 10,000 francs in cash in his apartment. He recruited a friend, another former prison mate, his last name is Avril, and they went into this shabby apartment. It was in a small alleyway in Paris. The stairwell was muddy and there was a greasy rope for a handrail. And you got to the top of the stairs and inside the apartment was the former prison mate. His name was Chardon and Chardon's mother, who was ill, a widowed mother. She was 66 years old. Avril started strangling Chardon, who wanted to kill him by strangling him, and Lassenaire pulled out a three-sided file. It's a file that you would use to sharpen saws or something like that, something that can get in between the teeth. Mm -hmm. Avril showed him how to sharpen a file because he was a machinist in prison himself. He was working on machinery. In 
France at the time, one of the ways that you were rehabilitated as a prisoner was to work, was to have some sort of employment. And Avril's employment was to polish machinery. So he was working with these three-sided files all the time. What you do is you sharpen down a three-sided file at the tip, and then at the other end, you fix a large piece of cork on it to make a handle, and you can use that as as a knife. Hmm. So Lassenaire was armed with this three-sided file, began stabbing Chardon, and then started to go into the widow's room where the money supposedly was. Chardon was a big man, and he was not easy to strangle, and Avril was still struggling with Chardon for a while, even on the ground. They noticed that there was an axe hanging in the doorway, and Avril took the axe and axed Chardon's head, split his head apart, and and killed him <sighs> immediately. Lassenaire was still armed with his three-sided file and saw the old woman in bed because she was ill at the time and started stabbing her face and inexplicably covered her face with pillows and blankets. And I partly say inexplicably because it turned out that she wasn't quite dead. Stabbing her in the face didn't kill her? Yes. When the police discovered the bodies a day later, they noticed that the torso was still slightly warm. So she was surviving through the night and there was a neighbor who had heard groans in the middle of the night and assumed that the groans were coming from a baker who was up before dawn uh, needing bread or something like that. So her face was covered. She ends up dying. They both, of course, end up dying very soon. And they're rifling through the apartment looking for money and there just is not nearly as much money as, as they thought there was. So now they've killed two people for no good reason. Right. So they come away with a small amount of money and just leave. He eventually had another accomplice with whom he was setting up the bank robbery scheme. He had tried multiple times to do it, and each time something went wrong. Either the collection clerk wouldn't show up, or the collection clerk would show up, but then the doorman of the building would also come because something seemed suspicious about two young men who didn't seem to have much money dealing with a bank in this way. They've rented an apartment. They've invited somebody to come up, a collection agent, hoping that he'll bring the money. Now, let me ask you, let's go back real quick. Did they not treat this like a Brinks person would these days? I mean, it just seems like they wouldn't walk around Paris in the early 1800s with pockets full of private checks. Is that typical? Was that normal? Yeah, it was not very easy to transfer large amounts of money because the financial mechanisms for doing that were somewhat primitive compared to today. So yeah, it's true that these collection clerks were not generally armed, though it's also true that most of the bills that they would have in their satchels would be made out to specific people so they wouldn't be cashable to a normal person who doesn't have fake identification. However, the clerk that ended up going to the apartment that Lassenier rented happened to have 91,000 francs in his satchel, which is quite a lot of money. And part of the reason for that, potentially, is that they timed it so that it was on December 31st, New Year's Eve of 1834, and it was towards the end of the day. And the idea would be that there would be a lot of transactions happening just before the end of the year so that they could take advantage of a satchel that would be as full as possible. That's so smart. So what happened when the clerk showed up? It was bizarre from the beginning when the collection clerk walked up the steps to this apartment that was rented by Lassenaire and his accomplice because when he got to the front door, the name of the person that the clerk was looking for was scrawled in chalk on the door. The name was Mahosier. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't make sense that you would have someone's name scrawled in chalk on the door. He knocked on the door. Lassenaire's accomplice who was a large man, opened the door, and immediately something was wrong. The room was somewhat dark, and it was spare. There was not much furniture. There was a large desk. 
there was a quill, there was ink, there was paper, and there were two bushels of hay and a wicker basket. And it didn't make much sense to him. But he was beckoned into the room and the door closed behind him. And Lassenaire lunged at the collection clerk with his three-sided file and stabbed him at the top of his lung, sort of by his shoulder, so that Oof. the blade actually went in and punctured his lung. And his accomplice tried to strangle him from behind. But the clerk was able to wrestle himself free and started screaming. And the neighbors were suddenly hearing that. And everyone panicked. And the collection clerk fled and ran down the steps. And he was gone. So it was another failed attempt. So these two crimes, the attempted murder and the double murder, took place about two weeks apart. They're both in December of 1834. So do the police connect these cases immediately? Well, so no one really thought of them as being related until eventually one of Lassenaire's accomplices wound up in prison and told the police, basically, I can give you information about the murder of Chardon and his widowed mother in exchange for leniency. And when the police got that information, they realized that these two crimes were linked. Now, we should say that the murders of Chardon, Chardon is an ex-convict. He was homosexual. He was a con man. So the police, quite frankly, didn't care very much about his murder, and they weren't trying very hard to solve it. What about his mother, though? Yeah, widowed mother in her 60s. I shouldn't say they weren't interested in the case at all, but the interest they had really was in the bank robbery schemes. Right. A crime taking place against a bank, and it was one of the major banks at the time. There were just a handful of large family banks that were effectively propping up all the major institutions of France at the time. And the Malay Bank was one of them. So most of the energy that was motivating the police at the time was about this bank robbery scheme. So it just happens that in the investigation of this bank robbery scheme, someone comes forward to confess who was responsible for the Chardons. Tell me a little bit about Paris in the 1830s. Lots of crime, not very much crime, political turmoil, kind of place us in this time in history. Yeah, so... Paris in the 1830s was a difficult place for many people to live. Poverty was somewhat rampant. It wouldn't be too long before revolutions would sweep through not only Paris and France in general, but across Europe in 1848. And these revolutions in 1848 partly stemmed from the poverty that was rampant throughout Europe. This was just as the industrial era was really getting going. And large numbers of people are moving into the cities to work in factories and are working in pretty adverse conditions. Criminology is also getting started at the time and people are starting to think more scientifically about what made a criminal a criminal. And so people started to speak of criminal classes as if they were a certain quote-unquote breed of person. Not only that, there were theories circulating at the time about the physiology of criminals, that you could look at the skull of a criminal, right? This is phrenology. Good old phrenology. <laughs> right. So you can examine the skull of someone and tell if they are likely to steal or if they are impetuous or have flashes of anger or if they are remorseless. And so when Lassenaire's trial came about, one of the things that really captivated people was that he wasn't like what people expected a murderer to be. You were supposed to be uneducated. You were supposed to be poor. You were supposed to be desperate. Right. And here was a man who was pretty well educated. He was uh, a poet. He published. He wanted to be a writer. He came from a good family. Mm -hmm. uh, even if that family went bankrupt, he was very well dressed. He wore a blue frock coat 
it wasn't just that Lassenier was educated. It was also that he was affiliated with what were considered to be revolutionary or radical ways of thinking, anti-monarchical ways of thinking. And so while he was waiting for the collection clerk to come to his apartment, neighbors noticed that he was sitting outside of that apartment reading from Rousseau's social contract. And at the time in France, Rousseau was associated with the French Revolution. The newspapers, when they covered the case and the trial afterwards, all noted and made a big deal out of the fact that he was a fan of Rousseau. And the notion that Lassenaire's murder was the coming of a new type of crime was the thing that was disturbing people the most. Hmm. That here was an example of the next stage in revolutionary violence, right? Mm -hmm. That it was possible, everyone accepted that you could potentially kill an unjust king for the benefit of your society. But then the question was, well, if you can kill an unjust king, can you kill a banker for an unjust society? Right. And if you can kill a banker, can you kill the banker's clerk? And Lassenaire was positioning himself as someone who was, uh, he said, I come to preach the religion of fear to the rich, for the religion of love has no power over their hearts. The poor people of France needed to be avenged, like kind of like a Robin Hood. Right. And that that vengeance would partly come in the form of murder, and that that murder would teach the powerful that they should not be doing the unjust things that they're doing. And this idea, this notion of an ideological murderer was the thing that captivated Dostoevsky. And the fact that so many people were taken by that idea was what horrified Dostoevsky. That's what I think was confusing. I think you've got someone who it sounds like is very intelligent. I don't know about the accomplices. Lassenier seems very intelligent, but he is also making some dumb mistakes, writing the fake name on the door in chalk. It also seems a little overthought. It seems like there would be easier ways to rob someone and perhaps even just in a dark alleyway one night and then toss them into the Seine or something. Yeah, that's right. Does he pick up a paper? He reads that someone had witnessed him reading the social contract and then it occurs to him that he can leverage this fear in society to connect it to his case. Lassenaire was toying with these ideas for a long time. So he was interested in Rousseau. He was interested in 18th century French philosophy. He was critical of the king and of uh, monarchy, but it wasn't a motive for his crime. That's not why he decided he was going to kill Chardon, for example. There seems to have been a personal vendetta against Chardon, though that's largely lost to history. They knew each other in prison. They didn't like each other for some reason or another. There is a good chance that Chardon was trying to blackmail Lassenaire. Hmm. Chardon was homosexual. Lassenaire, if you read between the lines, is also homosexual. And it was perfectly legal in Paris at the time to be gay, but there were ways to leverage that information in order to blackmail people. So it's possible that Chardon was trying to blackmail him. He talked very casually about his crimes. He said, you know, I kill a man as I drink a glass of wine. It doesn't really matter. Do you think that's bravado or do you think that he really feels like that? I think it's a little bit of both. He really does seem not to have much of a feeling for the people that surround him. One of the things that made this book even possible in the first place is that he sat down and started writing his memoirs as quickly as possible. So he didn't get through his entire life, but he was able to write about 80 or 90 pages. And his memoirs talk over and over again, not only about the injustice of society, but about how people are just awful to one another. That to read history is to read an unending ledger of abuses. 
And at one moment, he starts talking about how everyone should be a vegetarian because animals never did anything wrong to anyone. And that humans kill them without compunction. They kill them to eat them. And sometimes they don't even finish the meal, right? That this is sort of how he saw human nature as being not really worth keeping around very much. By contrast, animals were innocent. And to kill an animal seemed to him, at least in his memoirs, seemed to him an inexcusable thing to do. And that he would never really want to kill an animal, though there's no real record that he was vegetarian. <laughs> so maybe he was contradicting himself. But the point that he made, I think, was something that he really believed in, which is that humans are killing each other over and over again. And they're incredibly violent to one another. And you're on one side of the equation or the other. And he decided that he was going to be on the side of the headsmen, as he called them, as opposed to the victims. So he wanted to be a predator, not a victim. Yeah, that's right. So take me back and let's go from when he and his accomplice jumped the clerk in the apartment and take me through what happens after that. So they stab him and then we hear the screams. Yeah, so the criminals flee the scene shortly after the collection clerk runs down the stairwell. They were spotted by multiple people. The landlord who rented the apartment to Lassenere and his accomplice can provide a detailed description of them. They disappear. Lassenere is on the run immediately and starts committing some more petty crimes in order to get by because he has no money. The way the police ultimately put it together is through a combination of applying pressure to criminal associates who are already in prison and by going through police ledgers that are in lodging houses. So if you owned a or ran a lodging house in Paris in the 1830s, you were required by law to keep a what was called a police book, a ledger of everyone who enters the hotel, stays there for the night, and when they leave. Inspector Candler, who was in charge of the case, had a good idea of probably where in the city the criminal types like Lassenere would be hanging out and where they would be staying the night. And he had a false name, Mahossier, and he had a description. And he went through methodically every record book he could find looking for the name until he found it. He started to connect the description of this person, because Lassenaire had a very distinctive look, with what eventually became a whole string of pseudonyms. So he went by Mohossier, he went by Baton, who was a friend of his, he went by the name Gelaud. So there were more and more pseudonyms that he was attaching to this particular description. And he started to be able to piece together who he was staying with. As the picture starts to come together a little bit more clearly, and as time is going on, one of Lassenaire's accomplices, Francois, who was with him at the attempted murder, so it's the less serious crime, tells the police, I can give you the name of who killed Chardon and his widowed mother. And the expectation is that he was doing it in order to have a more lenient sentence mm -hmm. for some other crime that he committed that was not at all related to Lassenaire. And... From there, he is able to find out other accomplices and eventually is able to track down Lassenaire's aunt. And it's through Lassenaire's aunt that he finally learns Lassenaire's real name, Lassenaire, because he's been going by all these different names. And as his guard is let down a little bit more as the months go by, he begins making counterfeit bills to banks 
So he'll claim to be some person who's owed money from a bank in Lyon, but then collects payment from another bank in Paris or in Nice or somewhere else. And the way that the system worked is that you would offer payment if it looked like a legitimate bill. But he was doing this under the same names that he was offering before. So the police were able to match the pseudonyms in these counterfeit bills with the pseudonyms that were written down in these ledgers immediately during and after the crimes that took place in Paris. So it's a very low-tech way of going about it. It's basically getting descriptions, physical descriptions of people, matching those physical descriptions to pseudonyms, matching the pseudonyms to documents that were forged, and then figuring out where the person was who had those forged documents last and tracking them down to a hotel that was close to a bank that had just received one of those forged documents. And the key here was that what caught the police's attention was, number one, that this was not a sleazy guy, ex-criminal who was killed. Right. This was now a bank clerk who had money. There was an attempted murder and a criminal who's made the connection between these two murders and this clerk. And now they're saying this could be someone who's out of control and could continue to threaten people in the city. What is keeping Lassenier in Paris. I mean, why not disappear into the French countryside? Well, so he did end up going into the French countryside when he started going on his final spree of counterfeit bills. So he decided to leave and was caught in the countryside in a small town. But it was tricky for him to move around because his name and description were being circulated on the highways across France. So he did feel as if the authorities were closing in. And it was true that Candler in Paris was in contact with police officers and agents throughout the country. And when he was captured, it was a huge coup for the national police. And the trial took place just a few months after he was arrested. One of the things that's remarkable for a modern reader is to see how quickly the justice system acted at the time. He was found guilty in November of 1835, and he was guillotined just two months later. Go back to the trial and tell me a little bit about the evidence. So, of course, we have the inspector on the stand who's making all of these connections. Is Lassenier denying anything? What is his defense here? So, Lassenier realized that his accomplices were ratting him out, and he was incensed. Not only did one of his accomplices tell the police that he had killed the Chardons, but his other accomplice, Avril, who was a part of the double murder, offered to track down Lassenier if the police would take him out of prison and just follow him around Paris because he knew all the places where Lassenier was. Hmm. And so this was actually a fairly common tactic at the time where the police would let prisoners out so that they could follow them from a distance in order to capture a more important criminal. So Avril was going to their local haunts, the places where they always went, the billiard halls and cafes and bars, and Lassenier was nowhere to be found. But Candler, the inspector, basically said, look, both of your accomplices ratted you out. They don't care at all for you. When Lassenier heard this, he basically spent the trial making sure that Avril and Francois were also found guilty and that they got the maximum punishment for it. Okay, so vindictiveness then. Yes, yeah, that's right. Revenge. I mean, if there's one higher purpose 
one non-material purpose that Lossner had, it was revenge. He wanted revenge against society for his being poor, and he wanted revenge against Lossner and Francois for ratting him out. And it was Avril who would go to the guillotine with him, so he got what he wanted. The trial took place over just a couple of days. All three men took the stand. Lossner very openly and casually and candidly talked about all the crimes that he committed and who helped him and all the details. At one point, he even pantomimed the stabbing gesture that he made when he was killing the widow. He sometimes corrected small errors that the prosecution made when they were recounting their version of events. Wow. He was effectively incriminating himself more and more. He quite frankly didn't seem to care not only about the deaths of other people, he didn't seem to care about his own death. He said that he had dreamed of being guillotined for decades since he was a boy. His father, when he was a child, pointed to a guillotine on an execution day because the executions were public when he was about 10 years old and said, if you don't mend your ways, you're going to end up in a guillotine like this. And Lassaner said that the awful machine had this power over him since that day on, that he thought that he was fated to be guillotined. And he was thrilled by the possibility that it would happen. He even fantasized about being guillotined right at the very end of the trial. Like, why should we wait for a few more months? Why don't we just do it right now, like in front of everyone? Wow. His low estimation of human life did sort of extend to himself. So I guess there's a fairness in that. But his accomplices denied it. They tried to get out of it. But of course, that didn't work. So they didn't receive immunity. They just had some privileges. Is that right? That's right. So Avril was executed as well. And Francois, because, you know, no one died in the bank robbery attempt, did not get executed, but he was in jail. There were other accomplices and people who had heard about their plans, who had come forward to confess, and they probably did get slightly decreased sentencing because of it. But it was pretty much an open and shut case because Lassenaire wasn't interested in trying to cover anything up. Accumulating accomplices for Lassenaire, doesn't that seem self-defeating to you? To me, it doesn't seem like accomplices work out well for many criminals. If you really look at Lassenaire's motives, you know, what you said earlier, I think is right, that he had a very convoluted way of trying to rob people. It would have been a lot easier to just follow someone home from a casino and try to rob them, which he did try to do once, actually. <sighs> but that failed as well. It's so easy for crimes to go wrong. Yeah. And that's one of the things that Lassenaire didn't quite get. But what you can also get is that he was a little bit too timid to do it by himself. That he really wanted another person to be with him. Because before those first murders, he wasn't himself a murderer. When he met Avril, the young man, and he was really young. When they first met, he was only 17. I think he was about 19 or 20 when they committed the crimes. Avril had killed a prison guard, and he killed a prison guard with his sharpened file. So Lassenaire, in a way, looked up to him because he already had this killer instinct. And Francois, his other accomplice, was a former soldier, and he was missing three fingers from active duty. And he was a large man. And so he also seemed to have this killer instinct. He said he was willing to do anything for money and he didn't care. So there is a lot of braggadocio to Lassenaire. And it partly covers up the fact that part of him wasn't quite so sure that he could pull it off by himself. And he wasn't a very large person. He was elegant, which also meant that he was very slender. And again, his background is as someone who was planning to be a lawyer, right? And he was a poet. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that he was a criminal, he was just a petty criminal. He was someone who would try to steal when no one was looking, or he would try to create counterfeits and things like that. He was not inherently violent, even though he had a very low estimation of human life in general. What was his reaction approaching execution day? This is fulfilling a fantasy of his. 
A part of me wants to say that he couldn't wait, but he was anxious about it. But when he strolled down to the guillotine, there was an excitement to it. And the way the guillotine works is that, you know, you're face down and they put your head in what they call a lunette. And there's a piece of wood that has a semicircle in it and your neck goes in that semicircle. And then another piece of wood sandwiches on top of that so that your neck is in the middle of that small piece of wood. And the guillotine goes down. The blade just comes down very swiftly. The beauty of the guillotine is how simple the instrument is and how quickly it happens. But for Lasnair's execution, something bizarre happened. Oh, no. The uh, executioner just has to pull like a little tiny tab. It's not a large... Yank. Right. It's not a yank or anything like that. When he sort of flips that little switch, the blade starts to go down, but suddenly it gets jammed (gasps) halfway down. And it's not clear exactly why that happened. I've heard theories about the possibility that there's a narrow groove of wood and there's this sort of notch of the blade, sort of the blade's frame that goes down that groove. If it's been raining or if it's very moist out, the wood expands a little bit and contracts the space. And so it's possible that it just got wet and it got jammed. Mm -hmm. Whatever the case may be, the blade jams halfway down and Lassenaire realizes what's happening and his response is to take his body and contort it <gasps> so that he can turn upwards and look at the blade oh, as it's about to fall down on his neck. So they hoist the blade back up, and then as they execute him, he's looking at the blade oh, my as it comes for him. So it was this, for him, a moment of triumph that he would go to the guillotine and he wouldn't be afraid, and he would walk boldly to it, and he would actually stare the blade down before it cuts his head off. I mean, if France ever had a boogeyman, it had to have been Lassenier. I can't even imagine a more ghoulish way (sighs) to enjoy your own execution. It's amazing. There was an egoism to it that Dostoevsky saw and that Dostoevsky was captivated by because he could see that egoism in Russian society. You can still see it today, right? That people are interested in posing to such a degree that everything else in the world just seems to fall away and become less important. Give me the Cliff Notes version of Crime and Punishment for those of us who haven't potentially read it for quite a long time. What I remember is a student who wants to commit the perfect crime, but I know there's much more to that. Yeah, so Crime and Punishment is the story of Raskolnikov, who is a poor student, a dropout, really. He can't pay his student fees, and he's very thoughtful. He's intelligent. He is sympathetic. He empathizes for poor people, and he hates his conditions. He hates the fact that he has nowhere to go. He hates the fact that he had to drop out of the university. He hates the fact that he lives in squalid conditions. And he's looking for a way out, a very sudden and quick way out. Because he's a thoughtful young man, he reasons his way towards a drastic action and basically says to himself, well, you know, who are some of the worst people in Russian society today? And his answer to that was pawnbrokers. Because what pawnbrokers do is they feast upon the misfortune of other people. You have to pawn your last goods to a person who will charge you exorbitant interest, and you're going to accept that because you have nothing else left to do, because this is your last chance to help feed yourself or feed your family. Pawnbroking was exploding as a means of making money in Russian society at the time for various reasons, and so it was somewhat topical to have a story of violence perpetrated against the pawnbroker. So Dostoevsky thinks of a novel in which this young man, Raskolnikov, decides he wants to kill a pawnbroker, take her money, and use that money for benevolent purposes. And this was effectively a utilitarian way of justifying an act. 
Of course, it's bad to kill someone. But what if you murder someone who's not doing good for society and then use the money to do something great for a hundred people or a thousand people that the overall happiness is increased by your act? Skolnikov arms himself with an axe. He hides it in his coat. He goes to the pawnbroker's building. He does kill her. As he's rifling through her belongings, the pawnbroker's sister happens to walk in as well, and he's not expecting that. He goes back out into the room where the sister is looking at the pawnbroker's body lying in a pool of blood, and she's appalled, and Raskolnikov has to take his axe and kill the sister as well. There is not much money to take. This is similar to La Senora's story, and he ends up escaping. The rest of the novel is effectively, this all happens in part one. For me, crime and punishment was never a mystery. It was always like a thriller. All right, right. We know who the murderer is from part one. The drama of the novel is trying to figure out why Raskolnikov has done this. And the way the drama unfolds is through this inspector who is tasked with figuring out who committed this double murder. Now, the inspector doesn't have any evidence. That's one of the keys to crime and punishment, is that he's looking around for physical evidence, and he doesn't have anything. There's not a single shred of physical evidence, but he also knows just deep down as an instinct that Raskolnikov did it. So his entire strategy is to try to compel Raskolnikov to confess, because he knows that what he's done bothers him, right? That there's something that's eating away at him. And he keeps visiting Raskolnikov, talking to him. If you've ever seen the show Columbo, Mm -hmm. Columbo is based on the inspector in Crime and Punishment, where he has this sort of shambling character who asks a bunch of questions and seems like he doesn't know what's going on, but actually really does know what's going on. And he bedevils Raskolnikov and drives him crazy to the point where he's not sure whether or not the police are about to close in and arrest him at any moment or if they're miles away from actually finding out the truth. And he doesn't have any remorse. Right. He doesn't have any remorse for the women that he's killed, even after he's confessed it. The novel ends with Raskolnikov being sent to Siberia the same way that Dostoevsky was sent to Siberia and still not fully coming to terms with the thing that he's done. And, you know, he has a Bible underneath his pillow in prison in Siberia. And the question is whether or not he's actually going to open that Bible, whether that will be a part of his regeneration or not. I suppose the point, part of the drama, the question is, why is it that Raskolnikov has done it? Because if it's that utilitarian motive, it's a short novel Mm -hmm. because we already know what the answer is. The truth is that what happens through these conversations, both with the inspector and with a love interest that Raskolnikov will end up having as the novel goes on, is that he keeps offering different motives at different points in the novel. And it's like he keeps spinning around looking for a good reason for why he did it. And all of them fall flat. They're all somewhat false. And Sonia, his love interest, knows it. And finally, towards the end of the novel, gets him to confess that, you know, I did it just to do it. I did it just to take everything by the tail and whisk it off to the devil, as he says to her. Wow. There's a perverse thrill in destruction, including self-destruction. And that's very Dostoevskyan. That's one of the Dostoevsky's very large themes, is that we aren't rational creatures. We aren't people who use our reason and our common sense to work our way towards maximum happiness which is the way people understood human psychology at the time. There's a perverse desire to wipe everything away, 
to destroy things, to destroy the things that you have, to destroy the people around you. Usually we're very good at trying to cover up these perverse, destructive, and self-destructive impulses. What Dostoevsky knew is that there was a pleasure not only in creating the paradise, but there was a pleasure in wiping everything away. That there was a joy in destruction just for the sake of destruction. And he saw it in La Sonere, and he recreated it in Raskolnikov. So in La Sonere, he found the ideological murderer, even though La Sonere really, this was not his motivation. So this is a fabricated connection that he's made. Is that right? So what he found in La Sonere is a murderer who claimed to be murdering for ideological reasons, but actually does it for no reason whatsoever. Right. And that people are falsely taken in by this fake motive that if you finish crime and punishment, thinking that Raskolnikov kills for philosophical purposes, right. then Raskolnikov has evaded your capture in the novel. He's fooled you. He really does it for nothing whatsoever. And the same was happening with Lassenaire. And he sees how this idea of a romanticized version of a criminal is starting to take hold in Western Europe. Tell me the impact of crime and punishment both in that time period in Russia in the 1860s when it came out. And now, I read it in high school, and now we have it. It's obviously disseminated around the world. Yeah. So Crime and Punishment was a huge success from the very first installment. It was actually serialized in a magazine called The Russian Herald in 1866. In the first installment, the murders take place. So readers were reading it at the time and were appalled, partly because... The description of the murder is somewhat graphic, and it was not really permissible to describe murder in that way at that time. And so people were reporting about how readers were getting sick, they were getting physically ill reading the book, how it was just nightmarish and awful and appalling. What Dostoevsky wanted is for us to be in the room and feeling what Raskolnikov was feeling as he was about to take his axe out and as he was about to swing it at the pawnbroker. He wants us to see the greasy hair that's in a bun, her sort of like twiggy legs and her skinny neck and his last second fears just before he swings the axe. He wants us to feel the pounding heart that he's experiencing. There's fever dreams in Crime and Punishment. There are hallucinations in Crime and Punishment. We're not always sure what's going on. There's a lot of confusion. All of that confusion has to be told in the moment. It gave future novelists a path forward for expanding the scope of subject matter for novelists and for showing us how you can seem to get inside a character's head without actually adopting their voice. I just wonder, would he have ever found the right vehicle to have this impact that you're talking about? I just can't imagine there's another case that would have triggered this sort of visceral reaction in someone like him. Yeah, well, Dostoevsky was an avid consumer of true crime before true crime was called true crime. <laughs> By the time true crime was covered in Russian papers in the 1850s and 60s, he was eagerly reading reports about crimes that were happening. When he was in Siberia, he was sleeping with over 200 criminals, many of whom were murderers. And he was fascinated by their stories and was trying to understand what made a murderer do what they did. And he talked to as many people as he could. But one of the things he noticed was the commonality of it was that there was an exhilaration to it, that they felt a sense of relief. And one of the metaphors he has for it is just like leaping off of a cliff. You know that the end is going to be awful, but there's this moment of exhilaration and a freedom of falling just as gravity starts to take hold. 
I think in order to write about one murder, you have to understand about 50 or 60 murders. And Dostoevsky effectively was becoming a student of violence over the course of several years while he was in prison. And he was mentally collecting all of these types of people and trying to distill down into it some crystal clear image for him of what would be an important and compelling murderer for Russia at the time. And he was able to take some of the things that he found in his fellow convicts in Siberia, some of those attitudes, some of those voices, but a large brunt of it was also taken from Lassenaire. And the fact that he was drawing from Lassenaire was what allowed him to take this murder story and make it something about much more than a single murder. It was about the direction in which society should be going. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Dr. Neil Bradbury on The Mysterious Poisoner. He went into prison when he was 14 years old. He was the youngest person ever sentenced to a hospital for the criminally insane. He had got annoyed with some of the other inmates and had extracted cyanide from plants and trees that were growing on the grounds of the hospital and had killed other patients with cyanide whilst he himself was in prison for killing other people with thallium. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.